It's Day's Daredevil podcast, episode 54, in which a major blizzard hits New York and a young girl in need of a heart transplant awaits. Only Daredevil can deliver it, but that's only if he can remember who he is. Welcome to Dave's Daredevil Podcast, episode 54, part of Daredevil 101. I am J. David Weeder, but of course, you can call me Dave. I'm glad to have you. Thank you for joining me. And what is Daredevil 101? It's all number ones, all the time. Great starting points for fans, kind of coming back to Daredevil through the Netflix series. Some are good starting points, some not so much. The best part of Daredevil 101 is you can win a free copy of the issue I'm covering via Comixology, digital copy, available to you simply by sharing this episode. That's right, all you have to do is share this episode posting via Twitter and Facebook, and you're entered to win. Free digital comics. How boss is that? Sometimes I spoil you. I really, really do. This week is the fifth installment of Daredevil 101, the penultimate episode. And this time around, we're actually going to be looking at an anthology title of sorts. To me, anthologies are a lost art form. The idea of shorter-run stories, really just allowing the character to be, and tell simpler, straightforward tales. Something you don't see in today's decompressed comic book format. Kind of along with team-up books. Ongoing team-up books, I'll tell you, that was an art form and a half. To be able to curtail a story to make sure these heroes meet, to make it compelling, that's a hard, hard task. As far as Marvel, Marvel had some great great anthology titles and team-up titles. They also had Marvel Fanfare, which is a really high-quality bi-monthly book, no ads, beautiful, beautiful stories. Because they actually sought out good creators to tell these standalone stories. And you know what? The best thing about an anthology title is, if one story fails, there's another one right there to back it up. In recent years, Marvel sort of revived the anthology format, albeit amended. Instead of multiple characters in one book, they would have a title devoted to a single character. Different creative teams telling three to five issue stories. The one that comes to mind immediately, the most recent one, was Savage Hulk, which was a great book. The first storyline extended on an original crossover with the X-Men. The subsequent storyline expanded on Hulk's time at the crossroads featuring Doctor Strange. It became a book that I looked forward to each month because it played with different eras of the Hulk. And then it was suddenly canceled. Well, not even canceled, it was unceremoniously stopped. No announcement, no nothing, just gone. I'm still a bit bitter about that. Either way, let's be honest, anthologies, well, they don't have the same place they should in the decompressed comic book format now, which is both sad and, I guess, just a sign of the times? Now, a quick note before we move to break. I haven't seen a lot of emails, which brings me some concern. Now, on one hand, all of the spam that I was getting, you know, Plague of Locust spam, it stopped altogether, but other emails stopped. I believe something is wrong with my email, if you're sending emails to Dave at DaredevilPodcast.com, please hold off on that for at least a week. I'm going to try to get in contact with my tech support for my hosting service and see if there's something we can do to get that running again, because I'm pretty certain it's not doing what it should. So this week, I'm going to hold off on emails. I'm going to bring them back next week, because I do have some that were in the can. They've been there for a little bit just because of the timing of this Daredevil 101 series. But hold off until next episode, and we'll know exactly what we need to do from there. So I apologize for that. This week, 
We're looking at a great Daredevil tale in an anthology title. There's a shocker. Was it just random gibberish? Well, it was that, but it did have a point. And we're going to be looking at a story that puts Daredevil up against the elements and himself, which for Daredevil is always a great template. So I'm going to go to break real quick, get myself mentally prepared for a great issue. You listen to this promo for My Star Wars Story from Scott Rifen. It's a brand new promo for a great show that I listen to regularly. Great, great show. Scott's a great host. Very personal type of podcast, and I really, really dig it, so I hope you do too. So I'll be right back after this promo for My Star Wars Story. Generation Star Wars is speaking up and sharing its story. I'm Andrew Leyland. I'm David Michelini. I'm Tom Panneries. I'm Steve Glosson. I'm Matt Hunsworth. I'm Scott Gardner. I'm Ryan Shaw. I'm Paul Herman. I'm Jimmy Mack. I'm Ryder Waldron. I'm Justin Bulger. I'm Joseph Tavano. I'm John Jackson Miller. I'm Concetta Parker. I'm Steve Sansweet. And this. And this. And this. Is my Star Wars story. Is my Star Wars story. My Star Wars story. My Star Wars story. My Star Wars story. My Star Wars story my star wars story my star wars story my star wars story monthly at mystarwarsstory.com and available in the itunes store all right welcome back this week we are going to be looking at daredevil dark knights number one with daredevil solo title getting critical praise good sales it made sense to extend the line a little bit dark knights is an anthology title which would have several creators doing many arcs for example, the one we're looking at now was three issues, the one that followed was two, etc. This was a good chance to tell some different kinds of Daredevil stories set within continuity, but not within the structure of the main book of Wade's ongoing, so it didn't disrupt his story. Daredevil Dark Knights number one had an August 2013 cover date, and a cover by Lee Weeks that shows a skyline of New York that is covered with snow, with more snow just plummeting down. In a shaft of light, a lumbering man in a parka carries what looks to be an unconscious Matt Murdock through the night. And there's a giant apparition of Daredevil looking down on the scene, which we do see used quite a bit in covers. I dig this cover a lot. Snow and Daredevil, for me, go hand in hand. I've talked about the trading card by Joe Jusco from the Marvel Masterpieces line, which was kind of the moment I connected with Daredevil completely. Weeks, who's no stranger to Daredevil, draws a very sleek-looking Daredevil, and the colors really, really look great. Thank you, digital coloring. As much as I'm a little reluctant to accept new technologies when it looks this good, it's hard to really slam it. However, here's my critique. Marvel went from having an icon box in the upper left-hand corner showing the character, the Marvel logo, the issue number, etc., to a red band along the bottom. This is the formal trade dress for all their books currently. The red band obscures some of this cover, including an image of Matt's cane and the newspaper stating the winter storm. It moves some of the storytelling elements. Now, maybe that's just the layout of the cover, because most artists will, well, draw around the trade dress. Another critique is that, looking here, New York looks more like Smallville. Now, it serves to accentuate the claustrophobic atmosphere of the storm, and sort of the way a large city can become very small very quickly in something like this. But it also doesn't scream New York to me. The buildings look quaint, like a little Christmas village. Either way, overall, I mean, it's a great cover. I just wish I could see it in its full glory, rather than this red band. The story title is Angels Unaware Part 1, Whiteout. And Angels Unaware is actually a reference to a Bible verse, Hebrews 13.2. And that verse states, Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by doing so, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. Long story short, be nice to people. You never know who you're helping or who you're crapping on. It also plays, of course, thematically into the story, very, very strongly into the story. And the story itself was written and drawn by Lee Weeks, lettered by Clayton Cowles, and colored 
by Lee Lowridge. It is reprinted. There's a Daredevil Dark Knights trade paperback that not only presents this storyline, but the subsequent issues as well. It is collected as a whole, as this series ran eight issues. You can also find that on Amazon Kindle, Comixology, Marvel Digital, and Digital Unlimited. So let's take a look at Angels Unaware Part 1, Whiteout. The story opens with a prologue of Daredevil lying in the snow, thinking about the ideal of never giving up. But as he continues to lie there, more snow piles on top of him. The story jumps back a week earlier with a major car accident, and in that accident is a family finally taking the vacation they have planned for years. Jumping ahead to the present, New York is overcome with a major blizzard. A hospital emergency room is overwhelmed by mugging victims, hypothermia, you name it. One victim, a familiar red-haired lawyer, is brought in from the cold, knocked out and unconscious. Matt comes too, but his acute senses are momentarily gone, which changes abruptly as they come flooding back. Matt panics and struggles to figure out what has happened, where he is, and most importantly, who he is. There is a slight struggle and Matt is sedated, but as he goes into unconsciousness again, he compliments the nurse's perfume. And in the prologue, the first thing we see is a Bible reference to Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18, which reads, Come, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Now, this is also put against an image of Daredevil's blood on the snow. Daredevil's not a perfect hero. He's made mistakes. Here, as we're going to find out, he's made a mistake in misjudging his own abilities. But as he's laying there, he has that thought of never giving up. Never giving up. And that's what Daredevil is all about. As Jack Murdock would put it, if you get knocked down to the mat, fine. It only matters that you get back up. As this story plays out, you find out that this theme of not giving up doesn't just play into Matt. This chorus goes on to all the others in the story. There's a lot at stake by the time this issue ends. This single-page prologue definitely serves to intrigue us. It gives a great thematic tone right out of the gate. It has some failings, but I'm, I'm going to get to that in just a moment. We jump from here back a week, and there's this horrible car wreck. This family's finally taking this vacation. Finally, they've been promising for years, and, you know, there's a lot of things in our lives that we can relate to this. Things we want to do, things we want to achieve, but for whatever reason, they're just not feasible at that time. The heartbreaking irony of this is that when they finally, finally get on the road, that they get in a massive, massive car wreck. And it adds something to the story to see this, because as it plays out, you're going to see just exactly how this ties into Daredevil and what he's doing right now. However, just makes me think about hugging the ones I love. You never know how quickly something like this is going to happen. Tragedy can strike at any time from the shadows. So if you take anything from this episode, just take a moment to tell somebody you love them, hug them, spend a little bit of time with them. But that's my sentimental message for the week. It goes from there to the present, and we see New York in the blizzard, and it is a gorgeous, gorgeous shot. Not necessarily in the real world sense, just because of the colors that are used, but the colors pop, and I really love that some of the bigger buildings that are far away are fading into obscurity. They're just minimalist, shadowy shapes. And the way that they're all drawn together, I know New York is pretty tightly packed, but it even gives a higher feel of claustrophobia. Weeks brings the awesome in this shot, but I think the coloring really, really accentuates it to another level. And of course, the city is shut down. New York is brought to a total standstill, well, almost total. There are a defiant few. As the radio narrator tells us, there are certain places that are still open. The family run deli, the coffee shop, the defiant few as it describes it. And that's, again, echoing the chorus that even in the midst of a storm that's crippling a city, there are people that just don't give up, that push through, that are open to help other people. 
So not only is Daredevil all about not giving up, New York is all about that too. And of course, New York is a big, big part of Daredevil. Even when he's living in San Francisco, New York is a big part of him. And as Matt is brought into the ER, we see this thought process playing through the captions. The idea that Matt decided not to be a victim to the bullies, to the world, to his blindness, he would become its vanquisher. And he's a man without fear in name only. Matt, of course, feels fear. He is human. He does have those emotions, but he battles it. He wins. He pushes through. It's the man who overcomes fear that is no longer crippled by it. And that is Matt Murdock in a nutshell. Now, in the ER, Matt begins to slowly wake up. His memory is gone, which means that most of his learned controls over his senses are gone. Even the smaller, more reflexive senses are not exactly firing. Initially, he's got this cushion where he can't see, his senses aren't functioning, and it's a very short window of time, but man, when they do, they flood in. So how much of what Matt does on his day-to-day life is learned versus instinctive? I mean, as a boy, he wakes up blind with these senses. He has to slowly, over time, learn to filter these out and focus them in order to function and not be overwhelmed. And eventually, he takes that to laser precision. But without his memory, he doesn't know who he is. He doesn't have that background. There are certain aspects of his personality that are still there, but the mechanics are completely different. I mean, to give you a good example of what I'm trying to convey here, imagine you're sound asleep, just dead, sawing logs asleep. And within five seconds of opening your eyes, you have to operate a car. Now, day to day, we're operating a car that's normal. We know the mechanics of it, the gear shift, the brakes, etc. But five seconds after you've been awake, that's a little bit harder. It can be done, but it's not going to be done with the same svelte precision we normally conduct ourselves with in day-to-day traffic. You almost have to relearn that skill in a microcosm. And Weeks does a great job of balancing two things, as we have all the voices of the hospital, all the different floors, everything going on. It's just chaos, because there's a lot going on outside. But all these voices are flooding in. However, we make sure the most prevalent is the plot-specific voice, which is sort of the dialogue involving the young girl. A heart failing, there's possibly a match somewhere. So Weeks manages to not only give us chaos, a cacophony of just voices and machines. I mean, have you ever tried to sleep in a hospital? It's terrible. But he does give us that, plus a focus on the story-specific things, which is a great skill. The story never loses sight of what it's doing. However, it does allow itself the room to breathe and the room to give us just exactly what Matt's going through at the same time. And Matt just goes into a panic. He doesn't remember who he is, where he is, what's happening, and he's given a sedative. Now, here's an interesting note. As the sedative kicks in, Matt begins to focus. He begins to name the different spices and fragrances in the nurse's perfume. So somehow, as he's going into slumber, some of those reflexive things start coming back. How to focus, how to pick things apart, and identify them with his other senses. So there are portions of Matt's senses and what he does with them, how he focuses them, that are instinctive, that are subconscious almost. And as he's letting go, those come back. So it's a slow progress. Weeks is really playing with that, and it makes it fascinating for me. I mean, as much Daredevil as I read, I I always kind of take it for granted that Matt's senses are just there all the time, and he doesn't have to think about these until there's something he really, really has to focus on. But when you think about it, in his day-to-day life, just going through life as a lawyer, going out to dinner with friends, Matt has to be in control at all times. And within that, there's a certain element of Matt that is a little more high-strung. Now, as Daredevil, he gets to let go a bit, but he still has to have these controls, these simple actions that make him function. Things that we take for granted, of course. So in a nutshell, what it's saying is, yes, remember, Matt is actually blind. 
These things that he does and the senses that he has should not be taken for granted. And again, that plays further back into that never give up course, because even after his initial accident, even after the blindness, Matt had to relearn things. I mean, when you really think about it, Matt was suddenly blinded at eight years old, at least according to Daredevil number one in 1964. So Matt had to relearn how to read because he could no longer see the page. He had to learn to read Braille. And yet he pushed through that and he managed to graduate high school, go to Columbia Law, graduate top of his class. So he never gives up. He always pushes through. He overcomes fear. He also overcomes obstacles. And typically under better circumstances, he has a better control over these. He's able to function more. But at the moment, that control is kind of set to the side because he's forgotten everything. So we've had a lot laid in on our table in just five pages. But as we move on in just a moment, you're going to see how all of this is going to feed into the next leg of the story. So let's take a look at the second leg of Whiteout. The story shifts to earlier the same day. Matt is at the office, having fallen asleep on his Bible. Matt stirs and decides to walk home in the snowstorm. Meanwhile, in Pennsylvania, a young boy succumbs to the injuries he sustained in the car accident we saw earlier. But his heart will live on in a transplant candidate, a young girl in New York. And there is a thin let up in the storm that has created a very thin window of time to get the heart to the transplant recipient. Back in New York, on his walk, Matt runs into some muggers, which should be a cakewalk for the man without fear. However, the snow creates enough interference that one of the muggers is actually able to sneak up on Matt. Matt is struck in the back of the head and knocked out, his wallet left on the ground as the snow piles around him. But a raggedy man walks out of the snow and picks Matt up and carries him to the emergency room, which is where we come back to in the present. So when we segue back to earlier that day to fill in the gaps, exactly how did Matt get here, this segment also opens with a Bible verse. It simply says, For the commandment is a lamp, and the law a light. Reproof of instruction are the way to life. Which is from Proverbs chapter 6, verse 23. Not only is there some little bit of law in there, and kind of something reflective on Matt, it segues into the idea of the lamp. Matt was, well, reading by lamplight, which when you think about it, we take for granted, but Matt's blind. He doesn't need the light. Foggy's logic is that the warmth of the lamp would help with the fingers going across the text of the book. And yeah, in a pseudoscience kind of way, that makes sense. Additionally, we have Matt laying on an open Bible with his cross laying out on it. And the verse he has open is Psalm 144, 1 through 2, which reads, Praise be to the Lord, my rock, who trains my hands for war, my fingers for battle. He is my loving God and my fortress, my stronghold and my deliverer, my shield and whom I take refuge who subdues people under me. And to be more specific, it's contrasted against Matt's fingers laying on the verse. So we have that idea Matt is the protector. As we see, there's a moment where he thinks of changing into his daredevil costume, which he mentions is made by Stark, and it's thermal. So I can remove that nitpick from the story. Matt is the righteous man. He's the protector. He is the shield. And part of that comes from this faith that he's been maintaining, the Catholic faith. Now, he's not a devout Catholic. Not from anything we've seen, but it's still there and it will always be there for Matt. And Weeks is laying these subtle bits in, which I think are great. The verse is open. It's very small. I had to actually really dig to find this verse. He trains my hands for war, my fingers for battle. Matt is about to go into battle. My fortress, my stronghold, my deliverer. Matt is safe within his office, but decides to go out into the world, feeling confident that he has a shield. It's interesting. It's very nice. It's very subtle. It doesn't say, hey, look at me, but it is there. And then we go from Matt heading out into the weather to the results of the wreck from earlier, which are heart-wrenching. 
Now, it took me a moment to kind of acclimate to what's happening, to realize, oh, this is the, this is the same family from earlier. And the father is in a sling. This caption killed me. Basically talking about the father within the wreck, his arm snapped in a feeble attempt to thwart inertia. This boy's father tried to stop what was happening. He tried to protect. So it also goes back against that Bible verse that his father was to be the protector, the shield. And in this case, it didn't work. The confusing part comes from, we had this wreck earlier, and now we're jumping all the way down here and returning to that family. And I think it loses some of the emotional punch that it could. Because this is a horrible scenario. We hear all the time about heart transplants and how it saves somebody's life. The trade-off is, especially with heart transplants and major organs, that, well, somebody had to die to save the other. Which is really, really sad. And of course, we have more of the chorus here. The heart is still beating. It's not giving up. It's beating on. So Weeks remains consistent with his chorus. And with some of his subtleties, really is starting to weave together a moody piece. And we jump back to Matt. And Matt's walking in the snow. And I've always said that, well, the snow would be Matt's peace and quiet. It's his moment when he can kind of be alone with his thoughts because of the interference to his senses that snow represents. The flip side to that, as we see here, is it's a weakness. There's too much movement, too much cushioning, and it opens him up for an attack. He likens it to television snow. If you remember that before digital cable, at the end of the night, if your channel went off the air, it was nothing but static and white snow. Interference. That noise is annoying. So, good, good, good reference. As Matt is laying on the snow as well, just another nice detail. I love the detail on this. Matt's identification shows him as an organ donor. Tight work. We never lose the theme of the story. We never lose the chorus. We never forget that this is about never giving up and protecting others. The idea that we are our brother's keeper. Likewise, that even echoes further as Matt finds his deliverer. Because people have passed by Matt laying unconscious on the sidewalk. They've just, some of them have assumed he's drunk. Others just don't care. And yet this stranger, who appears to be homeless by all respects, he just has the trappings of a standard, cliche, pop culture homeless person, but of all people, this is the man that steps out. And this is juxtaposed against the Bible reference that I mentioned earlier, Hebrews 13.1, about entertaining angels. You never know who's going to be the one to help. And I did see several videos where, I mean, it was a setup, but they had a kid laying on the ground pretending to be homeless and cold, and most New Yorkers just walked right past him, didn't give him the time of day. Some of them looked at him, acknowledged him, and that was it. And yet, there was a homeless person that came out, gave him his own coat. And it seems that the people who have less understand what it's like to have very little and are more willing to share at least in the way things have been presented. I don't want to do that as a blanket statement, because there are people of means who do put those means to work in helping others. But the theme is very, very strong in this, and very, very lovely. So, we have one more section to look at. Let's dive into the last section of Daredevil Dark Knights number one. In the present, a medical helicopter with the transplant heart aboard takes off from Pennsylvania headed into the storm, which is worsening. Back in New York, Matt's briefcase is found by the nurses, and they struggle to open it just to get some identification for Matt. But Matt can hear, and he hears the sputtering engine of a helicopter caught in the storm. He also hears a punk in the lobby, pretending to do security checks on the bags of the waiting room's occupants. A fight breaks out, a gun is drawn, and suddenly the criminal gets his tail handed to him. Matt is awake. He's also heard the situation with the young girl awaiting the heart transplant, whose name is Hannah. The helicopter carrying her heart has gone down, and as the briefcase is open, revealing the Daredevil costume inside it, everything becomes clear. 
Matt Murdock, aka Daredevil, is Hannah's only hope. Matt suits up. He has a two-hour time frame to retrieve the heart, get it back to Hannah, maybe three at the tops. It's a very narrow, frightening window of time. Normally, this wouldn't be an issue, but Matt is injured, and he's still struggling to regain his memory to remember who he is. As such, when he takes his first leap from the hospital roof, he misses the water tower he was aiming for. Matt falls to the ground, and in the snow, which is where we saw him at the opening of the issue, Matt remembers his purpose. To never give up. Ever. And Matt gets to his feet, and pushes forward toward the helicopter crash site as the issue closes. And we reopen this section with the EMTs getting ready to take off. Flight Control is giving them a hard time saying, oh, you must have drawn the short straw, and they're like, nope, we volunteered. These guys know they're going into a dire situation. Nearly impossible. The storm's going to get harder and harder as they get closer to New York. It's not a likely win. But the pilot sells it. He simply says, what if it were my daughter? Again, more of the chorus, more of never giving up even against the most dire of circumstances. However, I want to comment here that in the real world, EMTs are some of the real heroes. This is a very likely, realistic scenario. And EMTs are out there all the time saving lives. And if that's not a hero, I don't know what else is. So I'm going to take a moment to say, if you are an EMT or know an EMT, thank you or please pass along my thanks for everything you do. And that also plays with the Entertaining Angels title, as these people are not the star of the book. They're not the hero that you buy the book for on the title. However, they're every bit the hero Daredevil is. Now, a little note here. I went to organdonor.gov to kind of get how likely this scenario is. Time frames, etc. And it, it states that because thoracic organs such as the heart and lungs can survive outside the body for only four to six hours, they are given first to people who live near the hospital where organs are recovered from the donor. So this is a likely scenario. We have a 40-minute flight. Unfortunately, that's on a good day. We're not having a good day. Likewise, as far as the proximity, Bethlehem, Pennsylvania is roughly 90 miles from New York, which would be between an hour and a half to two-hour drive, not accounting for variations in traffic. Again, Weeks has done his homework, which is great. This is a very detail-oriented issue, which for a nitpicky podcaster is a dream come true. Now, I will say one thing. As the nurses are trying to break into Matt's briefcase, it's not standard practice. Not normal. One thing, they only think it might be Matt's. Now, I get that we're wanting to ID somebody to try to get at least um, next of kin, something like that. But breaking into a briefcase wouldn't actually happen. It does fit into the story because we get a great reveal. Now, luckily, this time as Matt is waking up, his senses are reaching out. And his subconscious conditioning is slowly coming back as he's easing into consciousness. Now, he's not in full control, of course, but some of this is starting to come down to some bit of muscle memory. So there are larger bits that are slowly becoming more instinctive. But as his consciousness comes through and some of that is coming back and he's realizing pretty much who he is, at least partially, you see more and more of that focus return and the noise fades and focuses. And this does put this back on the table a bit, of the idea of how much is muscle memory, how much is instinct, and how much is focus. And that's not going to be answered in a detailed format, because that would be a dry read, and that would maybe cause some problems with future iterations of, of the way Matt is handled. But I do think, looking at this, looking at the way that he's slowly easing back into those senses and that focus, on a normal day, Matt's body probably knows more than his mind. So as Matt faces a would-be mugger, there are a lot of things that his body is used to doing that he doesn't even have to think about anymore. However, there are other things that require that focus. 
For example, walking to us is pretty much muscle memory. We can wake up and walk to the bathroom five seconds after our eyes open. However, going back to that car analogy, driving the car, a little bit more complicated. But now we have the focus on what's really happening. We have the stakes being placed in our face. We have a little girl who needs a heart transplant in the heart. Well, it's on its way, but it's not going to make it by helicopter. Now, the little girl's name is Hannah. And I put a lot of stock in fiction and meanings of names. And this one means grace or favor, which plays once again beautifully into the theme of the story. Because we're not dealing with grace for Hannah. It's not just her. We have grace for the heroes. Daredevil was a recipient of grace when somebody picked him up and took him to safety. Everything about this plays perfectly into its own theme without saying, hey, look at me, look at me. I'm being clever. I love when a story can just be clever. And that's part of the story itself, rather than going way out of its way to astound you with its cleverness. So again, we have the stakes put down. We have a little girl with a heart transplant. Helicopter is down somewhere in the city, in a city that's overcome so badly with snow that transportation's not likely. And of course, we have the last desperate hope. We have Daredevil, one man with a stick against the city and against the clock. To raise those stakes, Daredevil's damaged. He doesn't have all his faculties available. He doesn't have all of his focus. However, it's not going to stop him. He absolutely has to do this because that's who Matt Murdock is. You never know who you're going to save when you're Daredevil. Regardless of how he's feeling, he still takes the first leap just like he would normally do, which is admirable. He's overcoming that fear. And of course, in this case, he totally misses the water tower and luckily barely avoids being a blood splatter on the ground. Which brings us back to where the issue opened. Now we have context. Now we understand why that theme of never giving up is so important with so much on the line and so much working against him. And what does Daredevil do? What does he do? He gets up, spits out the snow, and fights on. And what is a wonderful final panel. Never give up, ever. That's what I'm talking about, people. That's when you just pump your fist in the air and just get into the issue. And with one final note on that scene, it does have another Bible verse, which is Proverbs 24:16, which reads, For a righteous man falls seven times and rises again. It's a more eloquent way of Jack Murdoch's philosophy of it doesn't matter how many times you get knocked down to the mat. It only matters how many times you get up. And Matt is getting up. So what is my final verdict on Daredevil Dark Knights number one? Weeks weaves a tight story. And it may repeat its chorus now and then, but it never sings it too loudly. It simply allows the story to echo the chorus. And it never strays from that. It stays focused even when it's all over the place, which sounds like a paradoxical, I know, but it is what it is. And it is the tiny details that make this story an absolute treat. We have Weeks using his gritty style and it fits the story so well. We are looking at dire, dire circumstances. Everything is working against Daredevil, against this little girl, and none of them are giving up. Weeks has a very, very clear handle on Daredevil. And by the time this, this first issue is over and we have the stakes, it's like shooting the story from the barrel of a gun. You're hooked. You're not even sure Daredevil can come through, but you want to see how this plays off. And that bullet's going to carry through the next two issues. Story structure-wise, this was a great, great opening salvo. Now, where I said it's all over the place is the idea of playing with the time frames, which overall, yeah, works, but it has a few stumbling blocks. It lessens some of the punches that would have come with this. Because we have this tale that's also filled with some great additional characters and settings, but we don't get focus on those. Now, of course, we shouldn't, because this is Daredevil and Hannah, and as it plays out, you'll see how all of this is organic to it. 
but the jumping through time was a little jarring, a little hard to keep up with, and it took at least two reads to really put together everything in one cohesive thought. I don't want to sound like I'm bashing that, but the focus that this story is bringing to the table with the tiny details doesn't match the focus that we should have in a chronological storytelling. In some places it works, for example, coming in with Matt laying in the snow, it intrigues us, but we don't have the context. In other places it doesn't work, such as the family losing their child in a car wreck. I think that could have been done in a different kind of sequence, very, very minor, minor nitpicks. It's a very, very strong, compressed read. It's very dense, which is great in a decompressed comic book environment. However, I have to acknowledge it. It needs to be acknowledged because I know some people are thinking it, and I thought it the first time I read it. It was done in The Flash. We had a story much like this in early in, in Wally West's tenure as The Flash, in which he had to race across the country to get a heart to a recipient, and ran into Vandal Savage, wackiness ensued. That story in turn was made into an episode of Young Justice. And that made me hesitate to really invest into this story. But Weeks manages to transform the same concept into something far, far more moving and magnificent, thanks to the use of small details, great continuing themes, and a tight, tight script with wonderful art. This is a fantastic issue that complements Wade's concurrent run. It gets a big thumbs up. But since this is Daredevil 101, the main question is, how is this as a starting point? And I don't think it's a bad place, to be honest with you. These first three issues are a standalone story, self-contained. To some extent, they're just a good Daredevil story. The subsequent storyline's goofier. Not quite as heavy as this is. Still good on its own. The third storyline in, in Daredevil Dark Knights, eh, not so much for me. But as an eight-issue whole, which is collected again into one trade paperback, but if you're going through the aisles, and they have Daredevil Dark Knights, and you've got a little spare change, by all means, check this out. But, next week is the finale of Daredevil 101, and because of that, I'm going to give you two, count them, two issues. Now, technically, that bends the rules a little bit. One of them is a number one, one of them is not. But, I wanted to talk about this particular topic a little bit further. Because... Not only does it play into Daredevil, it plays into the theme we saw this week as well. We're going to learn to understand why Daredevil lives to never give up. And in order to do that, we have to understand Battle and Jack Murdoch. We're going to be covering issues one and two of that next week, and yes, you'll be able to win two issues. So in seven days, come back here, Battle and Jack Murdoch. Until then, justice may be blind, but it can see in the dark. Scared. You have been listening to Dave's Daredevil Podcast, which can be found at daredevilpodcast.com. You can subscribe to the show via the RSS link, iTunes, and other podcatchers. Or stream it on the Stitcher app, which gives you instant access to a wide range of audio programs. 
Email for the show can be submitted to Dave at DaredevilPodcast.com or through the website's handy contact form. The show is on Facebook. Simply search for Dave's Daredevil Podcast. And I am on Twitter as well. My username is at Dave Weeder. Weeder is spelled W-E-T-E-R. Daredevil and other Marvel characters are copyright Marvel Comics. Any music or sound clips are used for entertainment purposes only, and no infringement is intended. This show earns no money and exists solely for entertainment purposes only. I am J. David Weeder. Thank you so much for listening. 